Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we're looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, and it's drinking game day, Andy. How long will it be before Pete mentions how much more he likes Jekyll and Hyde Hulk versus <laughs> Professor Hulk? That's uh, on deck. <laughs> let's start drinking right now. Uh, today we're talking about Minute 76, which begins with Black Widow's trigger for the Hulk and ends with Iron Man arriving at the scene of the damaged engine. Joining us on the show today and all week, we have Professor of Political Geography at University College London and author of Captain America and the Nationalist Superhero, Jason Didmer. Hello, Jason. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me back. In a glorious power move, he's already drinking on camera. That was amazing. <laughs> I have the advantage of time zones uh, working for me. It's a totally decent thing to do uh, in London at this point. Totally <laughs> decent. True, true. Uh, well, okay, so let's just start off. The, you picked this full week, so we're talking with you about minutes 76 through 80, and I just would love to know, uh, what is it that drew you to this particular section of the film? I mean, it, it's got a lot of action, and I thought that was kind of would be would be fun to talk about. It's a, it's obviously a pivotal moment in the movie, uh, or moments, I should say, given the nature of the show, since it's subdivided five ways. Um, <laughs> it's uh, you know the the moment in which kind of Loki's uh, plot seems to be coming true, and um, you know the, the 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 first big bust up, shall we say, of the Avengers, and. Uh, um, so, you know, I'd have done 20 minutes if you'd let me, but, uh, you know, I, I, stuck, I stuck with it uh, nice and tight here, five minutes. I mean, this is a good uh, a point in the film to come in. You know, uh, Hawkeye is here with these operatives. They are invading. They've blown up Engine 3. Loki is smiling. And uh, clearly, this is kind of part of the plan. And we've been talking a little bit with guests about uh, about this plan and kind of what their goal is. Um, what is your take on kind of this the sense of what Loki and and his team are trying to essentially do um, by invading in the first place and having Loki get captured? I mean, I think at this point, in the long arc of Loki in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, we're still in his kind of nefarious mastermind stage, you know, and and his idea of kind of setting the Hulk against everyone else and causing the, the team to erupt, you know, is a kind of, you know, erosion from the inside of the the obviously superior power of the Avengers and and playing on the fact that there are such big personalities who are used to working alone, which I think kind of fits nicely. And what's going on in the MCU at this point, you know, that you have the solo films coming together to make the big film. And how do you fit these big personalities or big bodies even into into the single frame? Uh, and it's kind of before the Avengers have managed to smooth out a lot of their differences. And and obviously, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's the it's the kind of conflict that actually allows them to then surmount these challenges and become something bigger and better. We're starting this minute off specifically as far as like all those those heroes and everything. This is that point in this film where Bruce has let his anger take hold and he has hulked out. And this is really that first moment where we're getting to see kind of Hulk in action and this version of Hulk as opposed to uh, the, the version that we had in The Incredible Hulk, which was I mean, it was still Hulk, just slightly different because obviously a different actor in the role. Now we're getting Mark Ruffalo in it. And um, just I'd love to get a sense from you, your impressions of Hulk at this particular point, as we see Natasha clearly 
in fear for her life as as she frees herself from this pipe that had fallen on her and now trying to flee from this very angry monster running after her. Yeah, I mean, I think Pete already gestured to it. I mean, you know, here you have the kind of the early Hulk from the comics who's, who's you know, uh, untamed, undomesticated, represents a kind of primal, destructive urge. You know, the, the Jekyll and Hyde Hulk, I think Pete called it, which mm-hmm. is clearly the kind of cultural reference for this uh, going back to Victorian London. And so I think, um, you know, what I'm struck by in the scene is you see uh, a kind of it is a slightly strange Hulk in the sense that, it, you know, he is both massive and powerful and yet somehow plucking individual tiles out of the ground and somehow tiptoeing through this place uh, in a way that's subtle <laughs> enough that you know, <laughs> Natasha's kind of sitting in the dark listening for him, you know. I mean, you don't know super dainty, like very gentle Hulk. Yes, it's like, yeah. along. It reminds me of, uh, you know, like... Um, Fred Flintstone bowling, you know, that yeah. <laughs> or, or Disney's dancing ballet hippo, right? Yes, like, yes, exactly. You know, so, you know, the, the kind of it's a slightly strange visual, but it obviously works, I think, in terms of um, heightening the stakes. Uh, but it, it is slightly odd, too, in the sense that Loki's whole idea is that, you know, you set this atom bomb off, which is the way he's often referred to inside the shield helicarrier and and so on but it's it's not really much of a um not much of a uh bomb going off at first right it's this tiptoeing uh version mm-hmm. of the hulk i don't know what do you guys make of it yeah i mean i i think that's the that's the thing that i love so much about this particular sequence is the fact that we get the hulk that they were afraid of the whole time right and that's the hulk we needed to see and it's why this hulk is peak hulk and it's just all down here from here right because it, <laughs> professor hulk is a character that formerly had stakes and has been neutered of those stakes yeah. and and this is where we get to see stakes it's where we get to see why people have to fear the duality of banner hulk and it's it's just glorious to watch them have to reconcile that fear with the anxiety that they had pre-transformation. I think it's just really great. And, and you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I part of the long arc of Hulk is at what point do the, does the production team lose steam in figuring out ways to, to challenge us with the duality of Hulk? And I, I totally get it. And the comics certainly did over time. But, um, but this, is, this is, is peak Hulk for me. Yeah. Yeah. We never quite have full touches of this Hulk because, I mean, even in Thor Ragnarok, we're getting it's kind of angry Hulk still, but he's no longer just kind of a the atom bomb character. Right. He he's angry, but he's also a the thinking working being that is making decisions. It's just generally he's still kind of cranky with everything. And so this is really the the time where we get a scarier Hulk. And I am curious if we will get back to this Hulk at some point as they potentially, you know, look at doing a, a Planet Hulk type of story, something like that. So, yeah. How do you ever do that? Right. It's like they've uncorked Professor Hulk. Like, how do you ever believe that Hulk has stakes like this ever again? And I, you know, count me as just like I'm, I'm dubious. And part of the reason I'm dubious is because I would love to be surprised. I would love to be surprised by them doing something really interesting with this character, particularly as long as Ruffalo is still into playing it. I mean, I think there's something there about, you know, the Disneyfication of it. 
you know, in that it, it's like, you know, when you think about the arc of, of Hulk, he becomes much more comedic, you know, I mean, if you're faced with the challenge, I mean, it's, it's also kind of in some ways the challenge of Superman, right? That you have this, this all powerful character. And it's like, what kind of stories can you tell with an all powerful character? Exactly. And, you know, and so here, you know, Superman kind of goes in one direction, uh, obviously, and we won't talk about the DCU anymore because quite frankly, it doesn't deserve it. And, um, but over here, you've got the Hulk kind of becoming this cuddlier, funnier, uh, I mean, quite frankly, more Mark Ruffalo. I mean, he's a, you know, he's an amiable sort, he, you know, it's very hard to dislike Mark Ruffalo or Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner. Um, but the Hulk himself becomes a kind of, you know, you could picture him as a big stuffed animal for sale at Disney World. I mean, he's getting, you know, he's giving autographs by the time we get yeah. to some of the later <laughs> films. It's like, eh, okay, definitely a different Hulk. So, well, okay, so continuing our conversation about Hulk before we really kind of get into the chase and everything, I do have thoughts on this cage that we have. Uh, we've talked about the cage quite a bit, but we haven't really talked about this. Uh, I have a few questions. One, are you talking about? You're talking about this cage that Loki's in right now. The cage that Loki's in, exactly. Okay. We see Loki kind cage. of smiling at the fact that you know he hears Hulk roaring, and I'm assuming that it's an actual diegetic roar where he's actually hearing it echoing through the halls of the helicarrier. So, does it make sense, first of all, if this is designed specifically as a way to get Hulk off in case there's an issue? Does it make sense to hold Loki here instead of? presumably another cell which i'm guessing that they must have on this ship Does, i mean any thoughts on on that like if if the chances of hulk actually hulking out on the helicarrier exist wouldn't it make sense to have loki somewhere else solid point <laughs> i think it's but it's, i think it's really funny that that this helicarrier has like the indiana jones ending uh warehouse full of storage containers but that they would only have one cell for this kind of this kind of, of you know potentiality it does feel a little bit awkward that we're only introduced to this one and why they would put it to use with loki so quickly like loki particularly because loki has demonstrated nothing else but being willing to sit and have diabolical conversations with people while he's wearing handcuffs because he fears nothing right like right. he is He's just hubris. And the fact that they feel like they need to put him in the cage, which was designed bespoke for Hulk, is sort of nonsense when you stop and think about it. I almost regret you asking that question because apparently, unbeknownst to me, I had thoughts. Well, here's here's my follow up then. If Bruce is hulking out, if he's starting to go to the stage where he's hulking out, how do they decide, okay, hey, we need you to go to the cell and, <laughs> quick, and do it there? Quick, let's lead you down these tiny catwalks to how the do they, cell. Right, how do they, I mean, this is the, I was thinking about this as I was watching this, uh, uh, watching Hulk chasing Natasha through the hallways. It's like, wait a minute, if Hulk is roaming free, like, how do they even get him there? It's not like they have a, a human-sized door on one side and a Hulk-sized door on the other. So, you know, they can run in with the Hulk pursuing them and, and sneak out the human-sized door <laughs> and both like doors shut. rat trap, right. Yeah, like, there's, like, I was like, there's, there's no way to get Hulk in here. You'd have to get Bruce in there and say, okay, it's like that point where you're, like, sick and you're going to throw up. But you're like, I have to do everything I can to not throw up until I get to the toilet. It's like, okay, Bruce, that's where you are. Hold it. Hold it in. Wait till you get in there. We'll lock in and then you can Hulk out. But I kind of like the, the alternative scene, which admittedly isn't what happens, but where 
you know, where Loki's in there, he smiles because he hears the Hulk is going, his whole, his whole long shot plan, you know, which he's orchestrated from, you know, several days out predicting all these events. You know, he's like, finally, now the Hulk is loose. He's going to destroy the place and he's going to, you know, set me free. And then he realizes he's held in the one thing in the ship that the Hulk can't damage. <laughs> and he's stuck in there while the whole place is destroyed and he's still left in jail to be found later. Right. <laughs> right. Or even worse, Hulk does make its way into the cell. And then it's Hulk and Loki inside the cell together. <laughs> also doesn't bode well for Loki. Oh, yeah. I, I okay, started so thinking awesome about this. design. Yeah, right. I started thinking about this. I'm like, I don't know if this design really works. <laughs> it really <laughs> run into a lot of problems. Uh, all right, so we're we're starting off this cat and mouse chase that we're going to be talking about over the next few days between Natasha and Scary Hulk, we'll just call him. Uh, my first note was I wanted to just get a sense from the two of you. We're setting up ideas of some pretty vacant spaces on a ship like yes. this. And I was looking at, okay, just out of curiosity, how many people are typically on board an aircraft carrier? So I looked up like the Nimitz class aircraft carrier. Those it's have like thousands. Over right? 6,000 personnel are on that. They have 3,200 crew who work on the ship and then 2,800 people who work on the aircraft. Plus, they have a small like 60 people who are on the carrier strike group crew, which is a totally different thing. But anyway, it's about 6,000 people. And so I was like, okay, so they fall to this lower level. They're now running around inside the uh, lower equipment room here. Should there be more people? It just, it feels like we've entered a horror movie for this particular scene where like nobody in the ship happens to be. Does that strike either of you as, as peculiar? I feel like this is going to come back to us in a, in maybe a couple of minutes when we get into some of the larger spaces and there's still, I don't think, enough people. I mean, I know it's a movie. We we don't have the like Lord of the Rings budgets to create thousands of, of CG characters walking around in the background. But um, it does strike me funny that they've entered a place in the ship where no one happens to be. I mean, you got to store the canned ham somewhere, Andy. And I think, <laughs> you know, if you're going to feed 6,000 people, that's a lot of canned ham in a lot of crates. <laughs> and there's going to be a canned ham room somewhere. Yes. And and just uh, the Black Widow's, you know, such a super spy that she was like, I'm going to lure him to the canned ham. And that's not and where people are. <laughs> maybe he'll get distracted. Maybe he likes ham. You yeah, know, that's what we know about Hulk. He's a big ham head. He really <laughs> loves his ham. <laughs> the real honey reasons baked. to get him down here. Right, honey baked yeah, ham. Right. Honey the baked ham. Hulk's, I, I, I can't wait for the new branding. Hulk's honey, ba honey baked ham. <laughs> Just a hint of sweetness. You got it? <laughs> Hulk will swallow it. <laughs> well, in the scope of green eggs and ham, I suppose that it, it would tie in oh. quite nicely. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We just went there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Poetic. Well, that takes us then to the bridge. And now we see Fury in action. Um, this is uh, Nick Fury. He's really kind of getting everybody uh, moving now that the ship's been damaged. He says to bring the carrier to a 180 south, take us to the water. So that pretty much means that they were, as, I mean, we're guessing they're somewhere over New, New Jersey. Um, and the coast, I guess, is directly south of them. I don't know. I would think New Jersey, this, the coast is either southeast or east of them. But I guess there are obviously some points where there might be a southern southerly coast in New Jersey. But anyway, that's what his goal at this particular point is. And we get the response from the carrier bridge tech who says, we're blind, navigation recalibrated after the engine failure. 
And <laughs> the perfect snarky line, this is the sort of line that I really think the writer sharply knows how, how to get into kind of a Samuel L. Jackson tone. Because that is the sun coming up, <laughs> then put us on the left. It just sounds so Samuel L. Jackson. Uh-huh. How does this little conversation play for the two of you? I mean, I, I think it's effective, I suppose. I think you're right. I mean, we're one step away from snakes on a plane here, aren't we? I mean, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, for sure. But uh, I mean, I, can we talk for a minute about just I mean, maybe you've done this in other minutes uh, recently, other episodes. But I mean, the flying aircraft carrier. I mean, it's it's. Oh, yeah. The, the, from the very premise, I mean, why would you ever fly that over a city or a, a populated area? <laughs> right. I mean, it's, the, you know, one, what's even the point of it? I mean, the whole point, it's like the point of an aircraft carrier is you can fly planes off of it. So, right. so, so why, why do you need a flying fly? aircraft carrier? I mean, it's, all it is is just an extra layer of danger to everyone involved. I mean... You know, if an aircraft carrier sinks, you can get in a lifeboat. If an aircraft carrier falls out of the sky, you know, it's it's a nightmare. You have to for get everyone. in a plane. Yes. <laughs> it's really exactly. weird. I mean, it's you know, I just think to fly that over the continental U.S. at all is a major misjudgment. Um, but I do think it's interesting, though, Jason. Like when you think back to the the early helicarrier in the comics, because it's been around as an artifact of the comics forever, right? Mm-hmm. Like I I try to put the the sort of cultural lens on why the helicarrier became a thing in the first place, right? Like what was it a manifestation of or a representation of in the comics? That's a great question. I mean, I think you know it's it's a classic next level thing right so that you know it kind of comes out in the 1960s in the comics which is kind of the real kind of origins or peak shall we say of nuclear aircraft carrier technology not the peak they obviously get better but i mean um in terms of it being the new thing right where you have these super carriers that can can travel the world and uh stay at sea for years and and all that kind of a thing you know and so as a kind of apotheosis of american military power you know, to, to do that, but then have it fly. <laughs> right, yeah, right. And then because that's obviously a patently vulnerable thing to have, uh, you have to make it be able to go uh, cloak and, and do all that kind of thing. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it pains me in a way that they brought that back uh, for the movies because they've done, you know, they've made pretty good efforts to try and produce kind of plausible um, scenarios and <laughs> in a patently implausible world, but to bring back the flying aircraft carrier is a bit, you know, um, I don't know, a bit too much fan service for me. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I stand, I, I like, I, I stand on that line, right? That it, it's one of those things. If you stop too long to think about it, it's ridiculous. Lest we forget, helicarriers are cool. Like that in the movie <laughs> is it might be just enough. But when you go back to like the 60s and as they kept sort of amplifying the 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 sort of helicarrier presence through the through the comics, like this whole idea that, yes, we've conquered the sea and we've conquered space and we've also conquered sky. Right. This is a thing like our dominance exists everywhere as a manifestation of, of political and military prowess. Um, like I get it. I get its representation much more than it's practical application. 
Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would agree with you. Well, and, and they've certainly you know brought up things into this existing helicarrier that we have in the film that we have talked about that are pretty illogical as far as the way it's constructed. Like, okay, so you can cloak it just from the bottom so the people on the ground can't see you, and the planes that do want to land on on you can still see a runway below them if they're coming in, but a you know, a Boeing 747 flying next to you will still see you. See you. You're not hidden from them. <laughs> Likewise, the top is still visible. So as the top passes between the sun and the earth, there's going to be a massive, you know, shadow underneath it. And so people who are looking up at the sky, seeing a clear sky, suddenly like are going to have the sun blocked out. <laughs> like, what? Where did the sun just go? Like, there are elements about their tech that just kind of make you scratch your head when you think about it too much. And so while... And also Google Maps. I mean, come on. Yeah, like, right. eventually, and, and satellites. I mean, satellite, every satellite up. is going right. to see it floating over the Earth. It's like, why? how did this aircraft carrier get on in the middle of Utah or whatever, it's you know? It's so funny. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But cool. Cool. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Everyone should get one. Everyone, everyone needs one. I'm exactly. in one right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about our carrier bridge tech. So this uh, this person who has the fun lines about uh, not being able to navigate because they're flying blind is one of our carrier bridge techs. It is Jesse Garcia who gets uh, the joy of going up against Nick Fury in this particular moment. And I just wanted to do the IMDb game with Jesse Garcia. Are either of you familiar with Jesse Garcia? I'm Come not on, sure. Man. You're you're like an incredible <laughs> troll on these things. Come on. You Always know you're just setting us up. <laughs> film school, I'm afraid. Nothing I mean, that would I'm, be on IMDb. I'm definitely familiar with the other yeah. Yeah, Garcia. Like whatever whoever you're talking about, I'm really familiar with the other one. <laughs> Well, he has uh, actually, I mean, he's pretty, um, he ends up in a lot of bigger projects and, uh, you know, is pretty busy. 81 credits at this point right now on IMDb. What IMDb says his top four known fours are, number one, the Avengers. Here is the Carrier Bridge tag. Yeah, I would I would have gotten that one. Absolutely I, famous. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. Number two, the film Quinceanera from 2006, which actually was a pretty big, uh, you know, it certainly... Um, was popular. I, I don't know if it was a film festival one, but I do remember that one coming out. Um, a lot of festival buzz with that film when it came out uh, in 2006. Third, he plays Dwayne in Alexandra and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Oh, so I yes. know that. That was uh, Carell, right? Carell and Jennifer Garner. And she's all in exactly right now. Yeah. Yeah. Last but not least, don't remember him in it. <laughs> last but not least, Carell and Garner and Garcia. I mean, and Garcia. Right. <laughs> never, you'll never forget. They they they, they uh, tie the room together, as one would say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> last but not least, a very recent uh, movie, Michael Bay's Ambulance from uh, last year. Yeah, he oh. plays Roberto, one of the uh, the people that. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal is kind of trying to cut the deal with and everything. So, oh yeah, Drony McDrone face that movie. That was crazy. Yeah, fantastic drone work. Whew. That's what I think I remember more. <laughs> oh, the yeah. Amazing drone work in that film. But I, it's and, good. And, I enjoyed it. until you said Gyllenhaal, I didn't remember Gyllenhaal was in it. 
like, <laughs> just remember there was the drones. no hope to remember Garcia. It's all it Garcia. was just he steals all the scenes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Garcia. When I walked out of that movie, I was like, "That Garcia guy. He's been places, and he's going to more. Yes, uh, he's going, he's going places. Yes. Going to more by Absolutely. air, most likely. <laughs> uh, but that's our carrier bridge tech, and you know, I think he holds his own in this in this funny little scene." about keeping the sun on the left, which, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a clever little line. It's, and that's what we get out of it. A powerful cinematic presence. Yes, that's good old Samuel L. Jackson, for sure. Especially <laughs> no, no, when no, he's I wearing Garcia. I was talking about oh. Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also have to be a powerful cinematic presence when you're working opposite Samuel L. Jackson. That's so. true. That's true. <laughs> Toward the end of this scene, we shift focus, and we're now following Steve as he heads out to the exposed engine damage. First thing that he does when he gets through the door is he sees an engineer there who um, was helping him get the door open. And then that engineer, along with another one, helped somebody who must have been injured as the three of them head out of here. And then we get kind of a sense of scale, and it's just kind of nice getting you – know, we get this camera pullback from Steve as we see him come out into this area that's – really damaged and the camera pulls back and we get a sense of how small he is as to as opposed to how big this thing is and iron man shows up um this is uh you know our chance to chat with you about these two characters uh, we're going to certainly get more of them but i mean um steve and tony how are they working for you in this film do you like the way that they are moving from where they had been in their previous films to now this team-up film i mean i i always found it slightly um you know, if I'm being honest, uh, in the big picture, not not speaking about the scene specifically, but you know, I always found the tension between them a bit forced in the in the kind of early Avengers stuff. You know, um, in that it, they they both make Steve much more kind of abrasive and egotistical than he kind of naturally is. And uh, Steve or Tony, Steve, I think. Oh, they make Steve okay. Well, yeah, I mean, or, or prickly, like he's he's easily baited by. Tony's toniness, you know, which I just kind of don't think would be the case. I mean, he's he's too much of a um, oh god, I sound just like just so in the bag for Captain America, but um, you know, he he's he, he's the kind of guy who might register all of this stuff and um, tuck it away for later. But you know, he, he he's not really one to rise to the bait very much, I think. And um, you know, and of course, Tony's irritating. That's part of what's fun about him. But I think. You know, I, 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 the stuff that they get into fights about to me feels very kind of contrived, you know, but that, that's, of course, the appeal of the movie is bringing people together and creating conflict. Um, but I, I did find it a little bit stretched. Yeah, I mean, a big part of the conflict, which has definitely been hit on a number of times up to this point, is the fact that there seems to be something that Tony has against Steve specifically because he is from the era when his dad was around. And that's that's an element I never was like, why is he why is this the issue that Tony is latching onto that, you know, th with Steve as far as his approach with him? That I've never quite I still don't understand. That's because you have a good relationship with your father. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, like so much of like Tony's animosity. I feel like this is the this is the stretch for me is that so much of Tony's animosity towards Steve is actually misdirected animosity that was meant for Tony's dad. And if you forget that even for a hot second, their relationship is bananas, Tony and, and Steve. Like it doesn't it doesn't make any sense that that they can't 
figure this stuff out. But as soon as you go back, and I think this they actually make good on this in later movies, not even later in this movie, but in later movies, we get more introspection from Tony on his relationship with his dad. And it does, I think, I, I think it does make this movie feel weaker because they're asking us to believe something without setting up enough of the old man, right, of, of Tony's relationship with his dad. You have to pull a lot from like Iron Man 2 to make sense of it. But also given, you know, his kind of, um, you know, the, the absence of his father for, you know, for much of his life, um, you know, and here's a guy who actually knew him. And, you know, like you think there could also be a kind of magnetic dimension to that, right? Where it's like, here's someone who represents that generation who knew my dad, who could tell me about my dad. You know, I don't know. It, that would, to me, feel more natural than what we get. But you're right. I mean, later you get a much more thoughtful uh, and well-rounded take on Tony's inner drives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's a question we haven't really talked too much about since it happened. But, you know, not too long ago, before the attack, we had this. The The group was in the wishbone lab here on the helicarrier and there they were starting to all fight amongst each other they were all fighting about anything you know and the question was that we had is it the scepter the fact that there's the in proximity to the mind stone that is causing this is loki somehow involved what's going on here all of that really kind of gets dropped as soon as the uh, the engine uh, explodes and the attack begins does that uh, does that make sense? Should if they were having this kind of this mental fog kind of brought over them from whatever it was, does it make sense that the explosion um, kind of shakes them out of it, or should there still be kind of that sense of animosity between people as they go about trying to save the ship? I mean, I think it's uh, obviously these are people of action, and I think a certain to some extent, action kind of overrides whatever. The mind was doing. I mean, your take on the mind stone is interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, you know, I kind of preferred to think of it as, and I, I may be wrong. There may be evidence in the film. This isn't the reason. This isn't the way to think about it. But you know, to me, I, I felt like it was the mere presence of Loki that introduced doubt uh, or uncertainty into a lot of their interactions. You know, so it was less that the the staff itself was doing something. Although maybe there's you know, cues that that's the case. But it, it's more like now we're in a situation where everybody's on a less firm footing and the, the kind of mere existence of him may be symbolized by the by the um, staff uh, kind of does the trick. But uh, I, I probably missed something if I'm being honest. <laughs> it's directed in a way where I suppose it leaves it maybe too open for interpretation, you know, to the point where it's, it ends up feeling a little muddled because you get that shot that crane, that kind of um, moves over the scepter and to the point where everything is upside down and the whole group is inverted. And along with kind of that, the sound design amplifies it and makes it seem like the scepter is starting to glow, which is what Clint and in his helicarrier or not his helicarrier, his Quinjet picks up on. And um, and to the point where in the middle of that scene, people are starting to like grab their heads like they're getting a headache from something or something is affecting their thought. And then and Bruce picks up the scepter then, you know, as he's getting angrier and angrier. So I don't know. It just the way they directed it. I, I think that we came to the fact that we liked the idea better that Loki was likely doing some form of manipulation as opposed to the scepter. But it really does seem like the scepter is 
perhaps involved in some capacity. Well, and let me just say, you're using you're using we awful generously there, Andy. <laughs> I I'm on board, but reluctantly. I actually prefer this as a as a, a manifestation of anxiety and frustration and fear between the team, and it kind of frustrates me when we do have that crane shot, and we also have don't forget the dizzy shot where yeah. it's right before this. Yeah, I mean when Steve's like wiping his brow, Tony's wiping his brow, and all dizzy. I just hate that that exists because I prefer this to be a team adjustment. And not not a scepter induced adjustment. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. I'm I'm on board, but I don't love it. Yeah. Well, I don't think I do either. It's just so, it's, okay. it's there. <laughs> 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 well, I I mean we're at this point where you know this they're obviously out of whatever fog they were in, and and they are at least these two are working specifically together. Not so much Natasha and Bruce at this point, but <laughs> but we do have these two working together to try doing what they can to uh, to save the helicarrier. Um, at this point, I, I think we're pretty much at the end of this minute as, as Steve is assessing what's going on and Tony arrives just in time to start looking as well. That's where the minute ends. I think that this is a good point to wrap things up for today. We'll talk about more of this in tomorrow's minute with minute 77. So, uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to and your book and all that. Ah, you're a kind soul to let me plug away. Uh, I, uh, a number of years ago, did a big project that was about nationalist superheroes, and it culminated in a book called Captain America, the Nationalist Superhero, which, as the name implies, is quite heavily focused on Captain America and the the emergence of this idea of superheroes that are linked with countries. Uh, And uh, the book is available from Temple University Press uh, in absolutely no fine bookstores, uh, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> probably on eBay or somewhere, you know, in the remainder but worth, pile. worth hunting it down for the covers alone. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we will put a link for it in the show notes. So you could just click on that to uh, to go right to Temple University Press and see the book and, and get your own copy. And um, get two. But yeah, I mean, get, yeah, hey, you got two you know, hands, get five, two eyes, yes. two copies. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we will be back tomorrow to talk about Minute 77. Uh, so uh, that's it for today. Pete, thanks as always. Oh, Andy, tomorrow, I hope to God we find out what this thing runs on. <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>